Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 46 in our series for 2017. And indeed, this is our final podcast for 2017. This week, we're talking with Andrew Haslip, who's the head of content for Asia Pacific for Global Data Financial Services. That's right. And he's going to be talking to us all about how banks can win over millennials. Banks have got to get something right with this. That's right. That's right. So anyway, it's going to be fascinating because he obviously sees market opportunities for them. Uh, And then we're going to have a most interesting assessment by AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver of the outlook for the stock market and the economy generally in 2018. And he's had some very interesting insights there. Yeah, essential listening, I would have thought. So now let's get talking with Andrew Haslip. Andrew, are you and the mob at Global Data reckon uh, millennial customers can actually become a really good segment for banks? Can you explain that? Um, yeah, sure. There's, there's. Uh, first of all, there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a large segment. It's a growing segment in terms of the, in terms of the working population. Um, so that's, that's, that's great on that metric. Um, but also, they, I mean, they, they have really good uh, penetration rates in terms of the basic, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, accounts, um, kind of uh, products. So you know, they're, you know, they're, they're fully uh, up on transaction accounts and savings accounts. And um, yeah, they do have a lower kind of penetration in terms of. Uh, credit products. Um, but that's mean. That's not necessarily due to an attitudinal thing, but more, you know, just down to the fact that uh, it's not a great time to be, uh, to be coming into the property markets in uh, in the key cities of Australia. <laughs> that would also indicate that, given that a lot of them are locked out of a housing market, uh, a lot of them would be looking for saving, wouldn't they? Um, uh, savings account is the, the, I guess we would always recommend it as the the, the ideal cross-sell for a millennial because it is the, um, you know, the after the transaction account, it's the, the main thing that they're going to have in terms of an extra uh, financial product. Um, and yeah, definitely saving for um, saving for, for a house deposit is, uh, you know, more prominent amongst this demographic than most other demographics we look at. Um, in Australia, so that's that's also kind of a kind of a big thing. But the, on the credit side, it's the only time they have lower penetration in terms of uh, financial products than uh, than other other consumer groups. I mean, uh, much as I've been written about uh, their. Um this generation's how do I put it disengagement with financial services. I mean, what's what's Global Data's view about that? Um, there is, I mean, if you if you if you look at their their numbers and the responses from um, surveys on financial services, they are uh, there is a little bit of a disengagement. Um, just generally speaking, when they're they're asked to to rate their 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 main bank, you know, as a kind of like a net promoter score kind of thing, more of the millennials will fall into the the kind of mushy middle, um, neither detractors nor uh, you know promoters, but that's you know that that's not necessarily a, a horrible thing because um, if you compare it to you know the Gen Xers where there actually is active uh, a more active maybe uh, engagement but you know they, they actually actively don't like banks more <laughs> then uh, that it's not such a bad thing um, by comparison maybe a little bit more disengaged but in part that's because you get engaged with a bank when you want to get some 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 serious cash out of the bank um, main, mainly the mortgage so that's you know that's kind of understandable. It's more of a a, a result of you know their the economic circumstances that most millennials find themselves in, rather than the actual um, turning away from banking. So, what kind of strategies should banks use to target millennials? Um, well, first off, if they if they are looking to uh, to to flog that mortgage, that all important mortgage, um, just kind of realizing where what you know what kind of context the millennial is in. Um, first of all. 
they're going to be a lot more uneasy about entering the markets now, uh, particularly as they're going to be more concentrated in the larger cities of Australia. So obviously the more overpriced markets rather than, you know, the more affordable regional kind of markets. So the number one kind of product feature that millennials value above uh, above all else compared to the, uh, not above all else, but more so than the rest of the, of the market is, you know, high loan to value ratio loans. You know, so basically they want that foot in the door um, kind of product. And, it, and that's, I mean, obviously one of the hardest things for a bank to to do in terms of you know managing their balance sheet staying on the right side of the regulator but that, i mean that is fundamentally what they want you need to get creative in terms of being able to offer you know higher more essentially what a, a riskier mortgages um you have to get creative in, in, in ways in which you can do that without necessarily imperiling your balance sheet at the same time so that's that would be the, the number one thing i guess is um be able to offer some high loan to, to value ratio loans and and on kind of affordable terms of course um another thing you know that they're they are they are the digital generation um when we looked at all sorts of different drivers and how um, different demographics around australia viewed banks and viewed their finances in general there's there's not a whole lot of daylight between millennials and uh the rest of the market in terms of you know they want a responsible lender they want to be able to trust their bank and you know on those kind of core metrics they, they are a little bit higher on terms of their drive for convenience and they're a little bit higher in terms of their uh, digital predilections so that's you know they're 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 going to be viewing that convenience through a digital lens so you know you you do have to be mobile first and uh you know very online savvy in terms of how you're you're, you're going to be able to to advertise market but also service the products and and, and the the on the acquisition product uh, of the product has to be very slick online because they're they're not going to put up with you know a clunky kind of uh, onboarding system um you know if they have to send you know send their their, their details away to to the bank in, in an envelope that's just not going to happen <laughs> you're going to lose that so banks uh, bank, banks really need to have a very slick digital product for this group yeah yeah, so that means all the, all, you know, all the, the KYC and uh, AML stuff that, that banks need to do and uh, absolutely should be doing uh, needs to be handled in a very, you know, kind of efficient digital way, right? You know, there are systems out there uh, right now that, you know, you can do all of that purely online. You don't need to send any documents into the bank or go into the bank branch or something like that. You know, you can you can open your accounts, you can you apply for a credit card, that that sort of thing without having to, to, to leave a digital check. Given also that, uh, you know, this would actually be a key way for, given that uh, young young Australians are frozen out of a housing market, this would actually be a key way for banks to, uh, for any bank to actually strike a really strategic partnership with uh, a key part of the market. Yeah, I mean, understanding that, you know, the, the difficulties that they're going through and that that's not always going to be necessarily the case, right? I mean, as they have more time in the market, they will be building up their deposit there. They are keen savers so that, you know, that their deposits are growing. The Hopefully, the, the, the property market won't be always unaffordable. As a, as it is now, in terms of uh, you know the the the, the loan to income ratios that we're seeing right now, and they want you know this is going to be their their prime segment, uh, the prime earning segment in uh, 10 15 years time. So, you know, showing being a little bit flexible now, winning over uh, millennials now, while they you know there might be a little bit of a tricky kind of segment to get into, and so maybe not as uh, as sought after by some of your competitors, is a great idea because it's going to set you up for having those relationships when when these millennials have uh, more more banking needs you know on both sides of the kind of the, the balance sheet you know in terms of assets as well as you know the, the the loans and all that so yeah yeah and of course it's it's the generation of the future which is good and of course there's always a prospect of being able to sell them 
credit products further down the track, isn't there? Yep, um, for sure. I mean, uh, they are interested. You know, they they do want a mortgage desperately. Uh, not as much. No one ever said that. But uh, you know, they, they are they are looking to own their home, own homes. You know, they 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 are still engaged with all the kind of classic financial goals that that people have. It's just they're having to wait a little bit longer. Um, they're you know they 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 have a little bit more unconventional lifestyle. So they're. It, but it all comes back to, I mean, you don't need to have a classic nuclear family to want to own your own home. And in terms of uh, in terms of personal loans, they're actually they have a slightly higher penetration rate than what you're seeing in the rest of the market. So, it, you know, it's not necessarily that they don't like credit at all. It's it's, you know, there are certain credit products that are just not available to them right now. Um, but, you know, personal loans, you know, there's opportunity right there right now. Um, if you want to get into the, to the car market, um, the car loan market, that kind of thing, you'll find you'll find plenty of earning opportunities so yeah so so that's a great opportunity for banks to actually carve out a real niche of, or certain banks to carve out a real niche in the market yeah um not not, not to say that the car loan market's not competitive and not difficult i mean you got all uh, the the finance companies that are that are there too that are you know able to offer real-time you know kind of uh, uh, financing you know on the spot when they're at the dealership so i mean not saying there's not challenges in addressing that but it is an opportunity there is ways you know they just have to get creative about doing that and there's particularly using mobile technology there, there's ways in which you can do that so right. we're optimistic about that well andrew thank you very much for your time really appreciate it thank you no worries thank um, you have a good day good to get the good oil from an expert Leon. that's right i think so i think so and and that is really interesting stuff and it's obviously a big big opportunity for the banks i think the banks need a bit of opportunity because they're taking a bit of a kicking right that's now. right and now shane oliver shane oliver the market is uh, up at this time of year as you would expect uh, what are your forecasts for 2018 we think that we'll see continued reasonable gains, but you, you have to expect a bit more volatility as we go through 2018. Uh, this year has been a, a very good year for investors, particularly so in global markets. It's been a relatively stable year. The, the biggest pullback in the US share market as measured by the S&P 500 has been uh, just less than 3%. Um, pullbacks in Australia Europe and Japan have occurred, but they've been in the range of 5 to 7%. So compared to what we've been used to in previous years where we've seen a lot more volatility, 2017 has been pretty benign. And I think that reflects the sweet spot we're going through in the investment cycle where we see good economic growth, rising profits, but still low inflation and uh, pretty easy monetary policy globally. Now, that will probably continue into 2018, but I suspect it will get a bit more volatile uh, I think inflation will start to pick up in the US. That will cause a bit more um, nervousness around the Fed, um, and therefore we might see a few more setbacks and a few more and a bit more constrained returns. But overall, we're looking for reasonably good returns because I think at the end of the day, we're still going to be in an environment of relatively low inflation but reasonably good growth. But I mean, the issue is that the Fed is scheduled to raise rates next year. I was reading even four times in 2018, which would take it up considerably. What impact would that have on the market? Well, yes, I think the Fed will continue to tighten as we go through 2018. Um, they have done so as we've gone through 2017. They've, they've tightened, perhaps more than the market was actually allowing for at the start of the year. And they've also uh, started quantitative tightening, in other words, reversing the quantitative easing. So that will continue as we go through 2018. But the pace of hikes might step up a notch simply because uh, the US economy is pretty strong 
inflation might start to rise a little bit, but more importantly, uh, the US is likely to see the tax cuts uh, that have been talked about for so long, which will provide a, something like a 0.3% stimulus to US economic growth. So yes, there will be a bit of a sting in the tail there from a slightly more aggressive Fed, um, but don't forget this is still far more constrained tightening cycle in the US than we've seen in the past through the last tightening cycle, which started way back in June 2004 and ended in July 2006, US interest rates were raised by 0.25% at every meeting for 17 hikes. Um, whereas at the end of 2018, we're probably going to be up to only nine hikes spread across uh, spread across three years. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's nowhere near as tight uh, or aggressive as we saw in the past. So would the market be pricing that in? I think at the moment the market could be a little bit surprised by how much the Fed raises interest rates in 2018, but then you could argue the same applied in 2017. Uh, the Fed the Fed seems to have raised, raised rates a bit more than the market was allowing for. But the market uh, will be reasonably happy as long as monetary policy in the US is still reasonably easy. In other words, the, the, the Fed is not really bearing down on economic growth, causing a recession. Um, and the market will be happy if US profits continue to rise. So as long as those things remain uh, the case, um, monetary policy not not tight and uh, uh, growth continuing and boosting profits, then I think shares can continue to go higher. But I do think that the US share market will be a bit of a laggard as we go through 2018. It's been a, a pretty good performer this year. It's certainly outperformed the Australian share market and outperformed uh, Europe, but I think as we go through 2018, uh, the monetary tightening we see in the US will will mean that the US share market will be a lag compared to other markets such as Japan and Europe, where um, they're, they're still further away from monetary tightening at this at this point, and and likewise by the end of 2018. So I think I think we're going to see a bit of a rotation there away from the US as a key driver towards other markets. Right, but uh, the other central banks are meeting this week as well, and uh, we're expecting some tightening there as well, aren't we? Not at the moment. So out of Europe, uh, the ECB announced uh, last at its last meeting uh, in October that uh, it will start, it will phase down again its quantitative easing program as we go through 2018. So it was currently scheduled to end this month. And they're purchasing 60 billion euros a month of assets. Uh, that will now be scaled down to 30 billion euros a month uh, for the first nine months of 2018. And they have sent, said that there'll be some sort of phase down thereafter. So it's quite likely uh, that the ECB will be still pumping cash in uh, right the way through 2018. They've also signalled that they won't start raising interest rates until uh, the quantitative easing program has come to an end, which suggests the ECB won't be actually tightening until we get into 2019. So in other words, the ECB is still where the Fed was when it was tapering. They're still pumping cash in, they've still got very low interest rates, um, but they're, they're, not, uh, they're not tightening policy. They're just easing at a slower rate, if you like. And what about Australia? I mean, our last growth figures were, uh, well, they were below economists' forecasts, but they showed they were tracking towards 3%. How do you see the Australian market tracking? I think Australia is okay. It, I often find myself in the sort of middle of extremes here. On the one hand, you've got a, a group 
the analysts and commentators who sort of think the Australian economy is about to fall off a cliff and we're going to have the recession uh, we were due to have in 2000 and 2008 or 2009. And, and this will be it. We, we've had it. You know, the, the, the boom in uh, China has come to an end. The boom in uh, housing in Sydney and Melbourne has come to an end. So therefore, we're going to go bust. The flip side, though, is that some people seem to be uh, expecting a, a stronger pickup in growth, particularly driven by pickup in investments. And I sort of lean towards that optimistic camp, but I'm not I'm not fully there. I'm not as optimistic as some are. I think what's happening here is we're just seeing an ongoing rotation in the Australian economy. Um, we went through a period there over the last few years where housing was a key driver, the consumer, um, to some degree, and that filled the gap as the mining investment boom came to an end and as uh, non-mining investment was quite weak. Now you've got a bit of a change going on. We're seeing a rotation, obviously, towards an increase in infrastructure investment from the states. That's been going on for the last year or so. And we're also seeing, at last, a pickup in non-mining investment, which I think is a very positive thing. Um, And at the same time, all of these mining projects, the resources projects, are coming to an end, and that's leading to a bit of strength in export volumes. So all of those things, I think, will keep the economy going. But the big uncertainty or the big sort of weak spot in the economy is the Australian household sector, the consumer, uh, where the combination of low wages growth, uh, high levels of household debt, rising energy prices, subpar consumer confidence, and so on, are acting as a bit of a drag on consumer spending. So that will probably keep the economy uh, constrained a little bit as we go through 2018. But nevertheless, I think we will probably see it pick up towards 3% growth. So providing we don't see a collapse in the consumer, and I don't think we will, um, growth can still pick up, but it's not going to go surging through 3% and probably won't be strong enough to um, bring us any early interest rate hikes from the Reserve Bank. We do think the Reserve Bank will raise interest rates probably at the end of 2018, but that's when they would start, not early 2018, um, and that would probably be the earliest they would start. I think the Reserve Bank is still looking for clear evidence that uh, growth is becoming more sustainable and, most importantly, that uh, wages growth and inflation have bottomed out. The latest job figures show there's increasing jobs, reducing unemployment. So the economic theory is that that will lead to increased wages growth. Yes, certainly economic theory points to an eventual pickup in wages growth and I've always found that uh, when I get things wrong, it's when I sort of depart too much from relationships which have proven themselves over many, many years. So I, I think things have fallen into place here. If we go back uh, in the aftermath of the GFC, it was said globally, oh, there won't be any, any economic recovery. We're going to keep sliding on down forever. Monetary policy won't work. It turned out monetary policy did work. We got a global economic recovery. And then, of course, uh, you know, it was felt that was going to remain subdued forever. And, of course, it hasn't. It's, it's accelerated over the last year or so. Um, now, of course, everyone says, oh, the wages growth will never pick up again. I think it will at some point. It's just that the relationships... Um, are taking a bit longer to come to the fore than they have in the past. We've seen that in the US uh, for some time now. America has very low unemployment, but wages growth has only ticked up from around 2% to 2.5%. But I think the reality is is that as labour markets tighten, uh, that uh, companies to get workers in, to get skilled workers in, will have to pay more at some point. That That is already starting to occur in the US, a bit gradually, and eventually it will occur in Australia. But we're probably still at least a year or so away from when that will occur. And I I suspect as we go through the next year, given that we've still got more 
unemployment and more underemployment that America has, that our wages growth will remain relatively subdued for a while yet, but eventually it will flow through to stronger wages for Australians. But it's, it's, a, it's a longer term story, but it'll take a while before that shows up. Well, Shane Oliver, that great insights for next year. And thank you so much for your time and wishing you all the best for Christmas and looking forward to talk to you next year. My pleasure. And I hope you have a great uh, Christmas too. Pretty good summary, Leon. I think so. Well, it looks like the market's going to be pretty good next year. And I mean, every, everything's looking good at the moment. Thank goodness for that. And now the news. What's on the menu this week, Leon? Well, Gary, the first big item was that Apple scooped up London-based music and image recognition startup Shazam for $400 million. The Shazam app, which allows users to identify the music that's playing nearby, such as a song in a restaurant or cafe, is a popular smartphone app, and it's been downloaded a billion times. Of course, the deal comes at a time when Apple's status as an innovation leader is under threat from Google and Samsung, and particularly uh, in the post-smartphone market. And the acquisition is Apple's most notable deal since it purchased Music Beats in 2014 for $3 billion, laying the groundwork for Apple Music. Well, it's a logical investment for Apple, and relatively cheap in the scheme of Silicon Valley things. Um, Music's always been big for Apple, uh, even before the iPad and Honest Descendants appeared. And it's typical of Apple's. They're never particularly always first, but they're always very good. That's right. And I think, as I said, this will be very important in the post-smartphone market. Now, Deutsche Bank has listed Bitcoin as one of the most significant market risks for 2018. Deutsche Bank's list of risks uh, sent to clients had Bitcoin right up there with higher inflation and the threat of North Korea. And Deutsche Bank's chief international economist, Torsten Slock, said the markets had not yet priced in Bitcoin's potential broader impact with the price of the cryptocurrency advancing $1,000 within hours to reach quadruple digits. And he said the big concern was that the price swings could become more systemic. And in addition to that, Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe says the fascination with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is in his words, a case of speculative mania. And in an address to the Australian Payment Summit, Dr. Lowe said it was hard to see Bitcoin being used for everyday payment. It's it's very dangerous. You can become a billionaire in a microsecond and lose everything in a nanosecond. Well, I think I think Bitcoin's a bit of an issue, Gary, because you know, frankly, it's valuable only because people think it's valuable. And that's hardly a recommendation. Just like the Dutch tulips. That's right. Indeed. Indeed. Now, household debt and weak wages growth has seen Australian consumer confidence falling again. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index shows the consumer confidence slipped 0.6% last week to 115.1%, effectively unwinding the 0.7% gain the week before. While sentiment around financial conditions declined, the index is still above its long-term average. Views towards current financial conditions fell 2.7%, more than reversing the previous week's 1.7% gain, bringing the sub-index to a six-week low. And views towards future financial conditions also deteriorating, falling 2.8%, but there were small gains in other areas. On the other hand, the latest Westpac MI Consumer Sentiment Index for December had consumer sentiment rising 3.6% to 103.3%. This is a rebound, 5% above the average for the September quarter when consumer spending slumped. And Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans said consumer pessimism might have bottomed out in the September quarter, and he put it to less concern about the prospect of interest rate rises and speculation about tax cuts. But as Shane Oliver told us, it's going to be a while before we see much improvement in wages and thus in spending. That's right. So let's just watch that space. I think uh, those will be the issues in the future uh, Consumer Confidence Index. 
businesses. Absolutely. Now, the National Australia Bank's latest monthly business survey indicates that business is finishing the year on a pessimistic note. After hitting an all-time high the previous month, the NAB's surveys figures have reversed sharply with a reading of 12, down 9 points from October, with falls in trading conditions and profitability. Business confidence was down 2, falling from 9 points to 6, and the survey noted this was a downward trend since the middle of the year. And most sectors reported weaker conditions in November. The only standout was construction. It was the only industry where business conditions did not fall in November. But the buoyancy in construction could decline too. You've got housing demands coming off the boil and even though the bigger contracts still look pretty good. Now, Australian mining industry is about to recover from its five-year slump with growth accelerating in 2017-18. A report from forecasters at BIS Oxford Economics, mining in Australia 2017-2032, has forecast the industry will pick up with global economic growth supporting commodity prices and underwriting new investment and mining operations expenditure. The report says Australia Australia's mining production only grew by 2.5% over the past year, but it says it will grow by 5.5% in 2017-18. That's more than double, and forecasts even stronger growth for the rest of the decade. While mining exploration spending fell to its lowest level in a decade last financial year at $2.9 billion, BIS Oxford Economics anticipates it will recover to $4 billion per annum over the next five years. The report forecasts that aggregate investments will decline over the next two years with the completion of all the LNG projects, but that will see a new cycle of investment starting across a range of commodities including copper, gold, coal and iron ore. And the report doesn't factor in the, factor in the impact of the Adani Carmichael mine because the analyst thinks that's unlikely to go ahead. Which is another way of saying that Adani's bid to garner several billion dollars in federal and state taxpayers dollars on the slim promise of what they alleged would be thousands of new jobs that's been seen for what it is. That's right, indeed, indeed. But it's an interesting report on the future of mining in Australia. Australia, I think. It is indeed. AGL was interesting too, um, saying they're, they're not going to get back into coal for that's right. They're, that's right. And they're actually now going to have a, their Liddell power station is going to be completely reconfigured, powered on solar, that's gas, yep. and uh, also battery. The, the decision in South Australia to go for batteries with Tesla is, is proving to be pretty great. I think that's pretty good too, yeah. Now, the big corporate news of the week. Sir Frank Lowy will sell his global shopping empire Westfield to Europe's largest landlord, Unibel Redemco, for $32 billion in what will be Australia's largest takeover. The takeover is part of a trend that's seeing declining store sales, pushing mall operators contending with the relentless pressure of online commerce worldwide to consolidate. And the Westfield board has unanimously recommended a script and cash bid offering Westfield unit holders 0.1844 Unibail Redemco shares for every Westfield share and US $2.67 cash and the deal values the company at $10.01 a share that's a 17.8% premium to West Westfield's last traded share price. The Lowy family will hold a significant stake in the merge operation and Unival Rodemco will maintain the Westfield brand. This is an entirely new chapter in the story of Westfield which began in 1959 with one shopping mall in the outer suburb of Sydney. Westfield is now one of the world's biggest shopping centre owners and managers. It has 35 malls, 6,500 retail outlets worth $32 billion, spread across London, New York, San Francisco Los Angeles according to its website. Its properties include the retail space in New York's World Trade Centre and the Shepherd's Bush Shopping Centre in London. The takeover of course comes at a time when shares of mall owners worldwide are falling as they try to reinvent shopping centres and Westfield shares have been trading at 9.4% lower this year. 
And the deal is expected to see Frank Lowy, who was formally knighted at the beginning of this week, take an honorary chairman's role at the combined group. Westfield co-CEO Peter Lowy will take a seat on the Unibail Redamco board. Now, of course, Sir Frank is one of Australia's greatest business success stories. Having arrived in Australia in the early 1950s after fleeing Nazi-occupied Hungary during World War II, and the deal will be put to a shareholder vote next year as part of a scheme of arrangement. I think that's a huge story, Gary. Oh, it's a wonderful story. And, of course, uh, Frank has... Um, well, Sir Frank, I beg his pardon, has contributed an awful lot to the development of soccer in Australia. Australia would not be in the World Cup without Sir Without Frank. him, that's right. That's right. He's, he's, a, he's done an enormous amount for this country. He's a very steady hand and he has been all through his life. That's right. Now, the Unibail Redemco takeover Westfield is expected to release a flood of capital into Australia's property market. About 35% of Unibail Redemco payout will be in cash to the Lowy family, as well as offshore investors and domestic shareholders, pumping $7 billion into what's likely to be reinvested into Australia's listed $120 billion property sector. Uh, Westfield has a fair slice of that sector, accounting for 13% of it. Yep, and now we're seeing a new era for um, the Lowy family, and his two sons, Stephen and Peter, will be uh, moving into the investment business, and it's going to be very interesting. That's right. Now, Optus has been directed to compensate 8,700 of its customers who were misled about maximum speeds they could achieve on certain Optus MBN's plans. Optus admitted it properly contravened the Australian consumer law by engaging in misleading or deceptive conduct and making false or misleading representations between September 2015 and June 2017. And the Australian Competition Consumer Commission said Optus had offered MBN services to consumers advertising a range of speed plans, including its Boost Max, which advertised maximum download speeds of up to 100 megabits per second and maximum upload speeds of 40 megabits per second. However, customers couldn't get those speeds because of what was called technical limitations to their connections. And the ACCC found that 48% of fibre to the node customers on that plan were unable to reach such speeds and that 21% of customers couldn't even reach half that speed. Some was even worse than that. Okay, Optus going to pay compensation, tough on, on Optus, but they're still not getting the speeds. That's no, the whole point. Indeed. And that's a problem with the MBN. Now, the battle is on to get control of oil and gas explorer AWE after mining services provider Mineral Resources trumped a $463 million all-cash bid by China Energy Reserve and Chemicals Group with its all-share offer. Minerals Resources, which mines lithium and iron ore, made an all-script offer of $0.80 cents a share, valuing AWE at $507 million. The Mineral Resources offer is not conditional on due diligence. AWE has told the shareholders of the board will evaluate both offers and make a recommendation in due course. In its statement to the market, Mineral Resources made it clear that the firm was moving into energy, securing gas assets, including LNG plants. Now, AWE owns 50% of the Waitsia field in Western Australia, which is reportedly Australia's largest onshore conventional gas discovery in the past 40 years. And Mineral Resources said none of the Waitsia gas would be sold offshore. Now, that's good news. That's right. So, I mean, that, there's a lot happening in that area. And obviously, they have uh, targeted firms are looking at energy as the future. Yeah. Now, shares in Retail Food Group, the owner of Gloria Jeans, Donut King and Brumby's Bakery slumped more than 26% this week in the wake of a Fairfax media investigation of what's been described as a brutal business model running its franchisees into the ground. The Gold Coast-based company, which happens to be Australia's biggest food franchise operator, is also the company behind Crust Pizza, Pizza Capers, Michelle's Patisserie, Cafe, Cafe 2U, The Coffee Guy 
and the Esquire's Coffee. And Fairfax reported that retail franchise groups is pushing franchisees to the wall with high fees in addition to rising labour costs, higher rent and fruit imposts with less support from home office as a company cuts costs. And according to Fairfax, franchisees have lost their homes, suffered marriage breakdowns and had their retirement savings decimated. The company, of course, denied the allegations, but it's been hammered in the market. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, real bad news to do things like that these days. You can't do it. And finally, Gary, online retailer Kogan.com has signed a three-year partnership with Medibank Group brand AHM that will see it offering budget health insurance under the Kogan Health brand. And this comes month after Kogan announced it was expanding into mobile broadband using Vodafone's 4G network. And that's in addition to Kogan Insurance and Kogan Travel. And Kogan Health will be launched in the first half of 2018, offering people cheaper and more affordable health insurance. And I uh, expect to see Kogan hamburgers shortly. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, that's it for this year. Indeed. You can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. And I have to say, this is the final episode of myself and Gary. Gary is now retiring, so uh, it's after eight years. And That's uh, right. Gary, thanks. It's the end of an era, and thanks for the era. I've enjoyed it a lot, Leon. And uh, it's been terrific. And next year, we won't be presenting material for RMIT. We've moved on. We will be presenting material for Acast, which is a Swedish company. They do podcasts for companies like the New York Times and the Financial Times, and they approached Talking Business. They want Talking Business, so we will be running on Acast next year. It will be on a different website. I'm sure you'll be informed. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next year.